Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. I want to share with you the tale of The Stronger Man by Sammy Davis. Once upon a time, there was a strong man. He wasn't just strong, he was bad. This strong man used to use his strength in the most horrific of ways. Every year, he and his friends, his allies, his cronies, they would mount their horses, they would leave their barracks, and they would go on raiding parties to the nearby villages. Whatever it was that they could lay their hands on, they would snatch up, they would steal, and they would take it back to their own fortress. There, he and his friends would mistreat their captives. He robbed them of their dignity. He robbed them of their freedoms. He robbed them, really, of their very lives. And he'd force his prisoners to work Locked up indoors from morning right the way through to night, never seeing any of the fruits of their labors, never seeing the sun or feeling its warmth on their face, never breathing the fresh air with its scent of the nearby flowering forests, never enjoying the beautiful world that was surrounding them but was so far out of their reach. All of the privileges of truly living in the world that they had once known He robbed from them. His schemes were as cunning as they were cruel. If anyone so much dare question his rule, his power, his authority, he would crush them mercilessly. For many, most, in fact, life in the strong man's custody just became a matter of fact. Their old lives slowly drifted long into forgotten memories. And that was probably his most powerful device, to plunder from their hearts and their minds the very notion of a life lived outside of their imprisonment, outside of his confinement. His greatest maneuver, if you like, was to convince the captives that life with him was all that there was. But I did say, didn't I, that this was the tale of the stronger man. You see, there was one who was stronger, and not just by degrees, you know, as one person is a little bit stronger than somebody else, but someone of a completely different order, magnitude of strength. This stronger man could never, ever be overtaken. That didn't stop the bad, cruel, cunning man from trying, but in trying, he sealed his own fate. This stronger man, who could not be taken captive, instead took captive the first man and all of his allies. But I should say as well about this stronger man, is that he wasn't just stronger, he was good. And having defeated the evil one and his friends, the stronger man made his way to the fortress and very deliberately set about undoing all the hurt that had gone before. He began releasing prisoners to life, 
to freedom, to dignity once more. And instead of robbing, he restored everything that had been taken away and denied these people. He himself would enter in and loose their shackles with compassion and conviction. He encouraged those that were now free to go and to see and to smell and to enjoy the world that they were made for once more. You can imagine that in this situation, some, many indeed, responded to the kindness that they had been shown. And they didn't just grasp the freedom, but they enthusiastically joined in with the stronger man in the work of setting other captives free before they headed out into the life, into the life to experience the gift that they had been given. But curiously enough, there were some who hesitated. Some even who resisted what the stronger man was doing and had come to do. It's hard to overstate the impact that the first strong man had had on his prisoners. For many, life in the darkness really was all that they knew. And the very idea that there was another world, a better world, a fuller life out there to live, seemed like sheer madness to them. And so they spoke to the stronger man who had come to set them free, and they said things like this, we don't know where you've come from, but we're sure that you have lost your senses. Stop what you are doing and get back to serving our master. Because they didn't know of anything else outside. For others, life in the fortress, in the castle, had, curiously enough, afforded them a certain status. Though they were prisoners themselves, they'd risen to some measure of authority and status in controlling and manipulating the others there as well. So when the stronger man came and began to set people free, they fiercely opposed. Stop! Don't listen to him. He's a liar. It's a trap. Don't move. Don't follow him. Don't listen to his voice. And that is the tale of the stronger man. The one who came and set many people free. And boy, when he set them free, they were properly free indeed. But strangely, people opposed him. People rejected him. People refused to accept his invitation to freedom. And so it is with Jesus. As we've made our way through the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of Mark, that story that I wrote this week really um, has been played out for us, hasn't it? As we've made our way through what Mark has carefully wanted to retell us about Jesus, his life, his ministry, we've seen the true inspiration for my fictitious tale. If you've been with us, or if you've indeed read Mark yourself, you'll know that Mark opens up his gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, with this grand announcement. He says, here is good news about the one who has come to set us free. Jesus, the rescuer, he says, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then before Jesus even encounters a, a, a captive soul, the Spirit, we read in chapter 1, sends Jesus out into the wilderness, into the, into the um, desert, to overpower the enemy, to overpower the strong man. 
Next, we read Jesus having resisted, having overcome, having defeated him to subdued Satan, that Jesus stands at center stage in human history and declares, here I am, and with me the kingdom of God. Satan, sin, guilt, death, as strong as they thought they were, here says Jesus, am I, the one who is going to overcome all things and invites all people to join him in freedom and in life. And Jesus does call people to follow him, and people absolutely flock to him. Because not just with bold self-declaration did Jesus come, but he also put right people's delusions about reality. He taught them the truth. He set people free from demons and their captivating influence. There was expulsion going on. He relieved disease and the death and the decay that they suggest and they point towards. He even offered to remove the disgrace and doom that we all bear because of our sinfulness. Truly, as we've made our way through the Gospel of Mark in just two chapters, we have come to see not just who Jesus described himself, but who he proved himself to be. The long-promised Redeemer that humanity had been waiting for for so long. He didn't just claim to be the stronger man. He demonstrated himself to be that person too. Now, think about the story I began with, The Stronger Man's Tale. There were several reactions, weren't there? There were different people who, when the stronger man came to offer them freedom, they responded in different ways. And so it is in Mark's Gospel, and especially Mark chapter 3, where we'll be this morning. I didn't just pluck these responses, these reactions out of the air. These actually map onto the different ways that people directly respond to Jesus and who he is in Mark's gospel. Let's read it together. If you have your Bibles, open it up. If you don't, then please just listen in. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 22, and see if you can pick up on some of the different reactions that are mentioned here. This is what Mark writes. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that they might be uh, sent out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, to them he gave, gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul by the prince of demons. That's how he is driving out demons. You see the three reactions, the three different ways that people respond to who Jesus is and the cause that he's making. And the first one is the disciples. It's um, a great little segment where we hear Jesus not just calling in general, but specifically calling a smaller group to himself. Um, there are names there that are already familiar to us. Um, 
In chapter 1, he's invited four brothers, four fishermen, to follow him, and they've responded. In chapter 2, he invited Levi, who is also known as Matthew, the tax collector, to come and follow him. And in verses 13 to 19, we see this bigger group, this select 12, who are called by Jesus to follow him, to be with him, to learn from him, so that they can go out, so that they can carry on and proclaim his coming kingdom to be involved in the work of overthrowing the enemy and to back it up with the sorts of things that he has been doing. And we'll think more exactly about what that means in our rooted groups, our small um, home Bible studies that we have every week. Um, If you're not part of those, then by all means speak to myself or John who was leading the rest of the service and you can find out how to join in with those about the implications of this, what it looks like to be someone who spends time with Jesus And goes out proclaiming what Jesus was proclaiming. And carries the authority that Jesus had. But what interests me this morning, and I want us to note, is just even in those 12 people, the different reactions that there are. Because even those 12 who were invited and who did follow didn't exactly respond in the same way, did they? As you're going through the list, names no doubt will have been jumping out of you. For me, there were a few highlights Peter, Peter, who for a time refused to be associated with Jesus. Think about that. This one who is called to follow and we know ultimately did go follow Jesus and to do the very things that are being described here. For a time, his response was to refuse to be associated with Jesus. James and John, we're going to get to their story later in Mark's Gospel where they totally and utterly misunderstood what it meant to follow Jesus, to be set free. They assumed it was a new opportunity, a new way for them to get authority and power and status. Mark even spells out the last one, doesn't he? In verse 19, Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. Judas is the one who ultimately decided that rather than following the stronger man, he would oppose him, sell him for a couple of pieces of silver, and try and be in on destroying him. It's amazing, actually, when you go through that list, to think of the sorts of people that Jesus invites, not just to follow, but to come so near, come so close People who even in their initial reactions don't respond to Jesus as Jesus would desire. They refuse to be resociated. They thought that they could use him. They even ended up opposing him. Isn't that amazing? And it shows us, doesn't it, that how we react to Jesus, how you have reacted to Jesus, isn't necessarily the last response you can give. Can I give you that encouragement this morning? If you come this morning as someone who perhaps in the past has said no to Christ. If you come this morning perhaps as someone who has pitied Christians for their primitive beliefs. Can I encourage you that Jesus doesn't look at you at one moment, one point in time and say, well, you said that then, so be it forever. Even amongst those who were nearest to him. There was a chance to change how they responded. Interestingly, um, 
we'd probably paint the picture of those disciples being the ones who knew the most about Jesus, wouldn't we? Who spent the most time with Jesus, and so really they're the ones who were given the best opportunity to, to think about him and to respond to him rightly. But what about the next group of people who respond to him? His family. A little bit further down, verse 20, it says that when Jesus was with his disciples and the crowd had been drawn in, people were amazed, people were flocking to him to listen to what he had to say, to experience the, the power and the authority that he had in people's lives. What happens? His family come and they want to take him away because they think that he has gone mad. Now think about his family. They've been with him his entire life. They've watched him grow. They've seen him develop, not just physically, but spiritually as well, I'd say. As he went along week in, week out to synagogue, as he participated in the annual festivals that was part of the Jewish faith, they've celebrated with him those festivals. They've, they've been side by side. But how do they react having seen all of that, having lived shoulder to shoulder with him for so many years? They think he's mad. They think, at last, he's gone over the top. They can't understand that what he's claiming to be and what he's claiming to do has got any basis in reality. They think, really, that his fame, his meteoric rise as is happening, they think that it's gone to his head and he's really just dived over the deep end. Now, to be fair, I think the description of his family here, whoever they might be, um, people disagree on what closer relationship that word family actually describes. But to be fair, I think these are people who have known him his entire life, but haven't yet witnessed the things that they've heard about. They haven't actually been present when he's healed the paralyzed man. They haven't actually been there when he's cast out demons, proving his authority. They've just heard these stories They've just heard about the crowds. They've just heard about the fact that there's so many people desperate to come to Jesus to find freedom that neither he nor his disciples are even eating. And they say, boy, oh boy, he's gone mad. Boy, oh boy, he's gone mad. Interestingly, we know something about his near family. We know about his mother. We know about a few of his brothers who changed their minds who actually did get the opportunity to see what Jesus was speaking about being lived out. And by the end of his life and by the end of their lives, they were followers of Jesus. His mother and at least two of his brothers became strong followers. And doesn't that show us this morning that if we give space to investigate, space to change our minds that Jesus can reveal himself, can reveal the truth to us. But surely the last reaction is the strongest and in many senses the most disappointing. It's the reaction of the teachers of the law who come down from Jerusalem and say, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. It's probably the most disappointing because these are people whose job it is, 
supposedly to study the word of God, to know the prophecies concerning the coming stronger man, to know and to be ready and to be preparing other people for his coming. They're the same people who should have been an entire regiment of John the Baptists, if you like. Seeing, recognizing, pointing towards him. And yet, they flat out oppose him, don't they? They flat out oppose him. They unashamedly say that, rather than being the one who's come to set us free, here is one who is part of some sick joke by our enemy and his soldiers. Here is one who needs resisting at all costs. Now again, they've had limited exposure too, that's true. But I think this reaction, more than anything, is the one that should truly shock us. Because they're the people who have been trained to see and to recognize the signs of the coming Messiah. To watch out for the things that are pointing to the truth of Jesus being our rescuer. They're the ones who should have been encouraging people that there is life outside the fortress. That there is more to life than living in the grips of Satan, sin and death. They should have been the ones who excitedly should have grasped it with both hands and thrust that news on other people. But instead, they choose. They choose to believe a lie. A lie, which I think we'll see in a second, is far less convincing than the truth. They choose to believe a lie because the truth scares them. The truth challenges them. The truth offends them. And that can be true for us as well. So let me ask you, do you see yourself anywhere here? In any of these reactions? Those people who are called and follow enthusiastically, whatever that looks like. Those people who have heard things about Jesus and just think it's madness. Or maybe one of those people who opposes him so strongly thinks actually Christianity and who Jesus claims to be is, is an evil thing to put on and to force on others. Because it's not just the reactions in my made-up story and it's not just the reactions in Mark chapter 3. These are the reactions that we can all react with. In fact, C.S. Lewis famously put it, suggested, that when we're confronted by Jesus, we have to respond in one of these three ways. We have to respond as if Jesus is seriously deluded, as if he's seriously evil and he's trying to delude us, or that seriously now, he is the one who he says he is. C.S. Lewis says, you have to choose one of those three reactions. There's no other space when you finally encounter Jesus. He is either mad, he's either bad, or he's actually God himself. Very quickly, I just want to show you why it matters how we respond to this. Jesus responded. Let's pick it up in verse 23. See what he says. Jesus called them all over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Okay, think about this now. He's responding directly to what the teachers of the law have said. 
Oh, here he is, this man who casts out demons, and it's by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he does this. Jesus says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Do you see what he's doing now? I'm going to pause quickly. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, this lie that uh, I, Jesus, am in league with the devil somehow, and that's how I'm casting out demons, it makes no sense. It's, it's, it's utterly delusional. How can you come into this scenario and say, it is by Satan that I'm driving out Satan? That does not make any sense. An army that fights against itself will destroy itself. No, an army fights against its enemy and either wins or loses. Can you see how the lie that they're believing in just doesn't make any sense? And he carries on. Truly, I tell you, uh, sorry, verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Can you see where I got the idea for my story? Jesus says, that's, that's so not the truth. Obviously, who I am, what I'm doing, tells you the story of me as the one who is stronger than the enemy, who has bound up the enemy and is now plundering his house, setting people free. And this is where the rubber really hits the road. Verse 28, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all of their sins. Good news. People can be forgiven every slander that they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mothers and brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. His response was this, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Yeah, serious stuff. Now, this challenge that Jesus lays out of who he is and how we respond to him, he puts it in the most serious terms, doesn't it? He says there is forgiveness available to anybody for any sin and any kind of slander that they have uttered with their mouths. Repent, he's already said that. Believe and you will find forgiveness. That's what Jesus is all about. That is what Jesus has come to do, to set us free from the enemy, to come eventually, we celebrated with the communion, to die on a cross, to set us free from the guilt and the power and the penalty of sin. Repent, believe, Trust in me, there is forgiveness for anything. No one is beyond my grace, says Jesus. But, but, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. That is a verse that has caused people to question, caused people to grieve, caused people even to fall away from the faith out of fear that they have done something which is unforgivable. Very quickly, I want us to see how this is 
not something really that any Christian should be afraid of, but it is a warning about the seriousness of carrying on with a description of Jesus in our hearts and our minds as someone who is mad or bad. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Okay? What is the work of the Holy Spirit? In John chapter 15, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the one who is going to come, the Spirit of truth, who will witness, testify to Jesus. One of, if not the main works of the Holy Spirit, is to help people like you and me to understand who Jesus is. To understand that Jesus isn't just a good man, isn't just a wise teacher, but is the Son of God, taken on flesh, living a perfect life, dying a perfect death, and dying in our place. That is what the Holy Spirit is all about. Helping us to see that, to believe that, and to trust in that. Up until this point in Mark's gospel, the Holy Spirit working through Jesus has been helping people to see that. By giving Jesus the power and the authority and the strength to cast out demons, to heal physical ailments, and to say that people's sins are forgiven. The Holy Spirit has been at work. So when people like the teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem, see and observe everything that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness about Jesus, that he is the rescuer, come to set us free and say, no, he is not. He's in league with the devil. What are they doing? Well, in Jesus' language, they are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They are calling him a liar. How does that translate to us? I think ultimately this is whenever any of us in our hearts settle and decide on the fact that Jesus is not who he said he is. That the witness of the scriptures and the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our lives and we say, no, that is not true. The unforgivable sin, if you like, I think this is the simplest way to explain it, is unbelief is when the Holy Spirit testifies to us, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Savior. And not just through a lack of understanding, not just through a lack of exposure or um, a lack so far to investigate, there's space for us to, to have a wrong opinion of Jesus and to come and to find faith. But when we find ourselves in that position when we have settled our hearts, when we have settled our minds, when we have decided not to follow Jesus, but to reject him, Jesus' warning here is, well, where will you find forgiveness then? As crazy as the teachers of the law's explanation was, so is sensible this explanation, isn't it? Because if forgiveness is only found in trusting Jesus, repenting, believing, turning, following him, then for anyone who in their life decides that they are not going to do that, where will they find forgiveness? Where can we find forgiveness of sin if unless it's with Jesus? The language, I think, maybe confuses us, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but this is what it boils down to. That if in our lives we settle and we decide Jesus is not the one to follow, Jesus is not the rescuer, where else are we going to go? Of course there's no forgiveness because forgiveness is only found in Christ. Now let me just be clear about this. 
This isn't just at one point, one moment in time, thinking this way. Because actually the Bible paints a picture of us all that our eyes are blind, our ears are stopped, our hearts are hard and we can't see or understand. We need the Holy Spirit to come in and to open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our heart, to help us to see and to understand who Jesus is. And yet there is a heck of a lot of language in the Scriptures about people who harden their hearts, who turn away from the truth who fight and wrestle and desire not just for this not to be true for themselves, but not to be true for anybody. If you're kind of, I guess maybe in the position of Jesus' family, who hadn't seen the miracles and came along and said, if he's saying this thing, maybe he's mad. There was time. There was space. There was the work of the Spirit still left for them to come and to find Jesus and to find forgiveness. But you know, like for people like the teachers of the law, they're that step closer, aren't they? To shutting off completely to who Jesus is and what he offers us, freedom. Let's go back to the story of the stronger man. I wrote that story on purpose to try and help us to understand that. Jesus has come in, he has defeated the enemy, and he's offering people to go free. Who gets to enjoy that freedom? It's the people who respond. It's the people who, having had the shackles taken off, step out into the light. Certainly not those people who, until the bitter end, refuse to follow his voice. And so the question is, what does this mean for you? How are you going to respond? Are you going to stay in disbelief? Are you going to stay in that camp of Jesus is mad or Jesus is bad? Are you going to harden your hearts and be unwilling to listen to what the Holy Spirit says through his word, the Bible, through his people, the church, through that quiet voice inside that confirms to you, yeah, what's going on here is true. Jesus really did live. Jesus really did die. He really did rise from the dead to take away all my guilt and sin and punishment. And, and what? Ah, it's not just escaping things with Jesus, is it? It's finding family. What an offer we see there at the end, verses 31 to 35. Some people read that as if Jesus is downplaying his physical family. When they come and people say, oh, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And he says, who are my family? As if that means somehow that physical blood relationships don't mean anything. What does Jesus actually say? He looks around and he says, I've got a far bigger family than just my mother and my brothers out there. Those who follow me, those who do the will of my father, those are my mother and brothers and sisters. You see, the offer isn't just to step into the light, to discover the truth and to find freedom. The offer is actually to find a family, to find someone who is with you through thick and thin To find someone who is willing to provide for every single need that you have. Who will care about you and love you like a family should love one another. So how will you respond? Having seen, having heard, having witnessed who Jesus is. Having the Holy Spirit at work in you, testifying to you that 
It's all true. Jesus really is the one you need to follow. There is forgiveness nowhere else. Will you live in the family, in the victory, in the freedom? Or will you stubbornly continue to refuse? I hope Jesus' warning and the reactions of other people in Mark chapter 3 will encourage you to investigate, to look to Jesus, to find out why so many people think that he is the Son of God. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.